Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name together as a church body, whether we're here or at home. And Lord, I ask that you would do for us what you've done for us so many times, but Lord, that could never be done enough, and that is that you would make old things new, that the things that we knew and realized when we trusted you first as Savior would, would be made fresh. Lord, that you would convict us of sin and show us the disparity between who we are and who we should be. Lord, that you'd teach us from your word today about humility, about the necessity of our cleanliness, spiritually speaking. Lord, I ask that you bless other churches that are meeting in different ways, those that are close by and those that are far away. But Lord, bless them and, and fill their pastors with the truth of your word so that it is heard clearly. Lord, when we hear that word, may we change wherever necessary to be more like you and less like ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you bless those who are ill and Lord, those who are taking care of those who are ill. We ask that you bless our country where we're divided, that you'd bring us together on the same page for your glory and not any one of our own. And Lord, we ask that you would bless our country as far as our leadership that you'd give them wisdom beyond their years, beyond their experiences, beyond their own wisdom. Give them your wisdom. And Lord, would you bless your church to be busy about the business for which you died. Lord, that we would take our role seriously, that we would do what is expected of us, and that we would humbly serve those whom we would like to call brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we ask your blessing on our time together, especially as we open your word. Be our teacher. May we be good students. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of John. We're back in our series of John after a summer break. It feels like a long summer break. This one has been strange. It didn't go by as fast in some ways, but then again, it did go by very fast. And uh, before we know it, well, next week will be a a holiday weekend. And um, before you know that, it'll be Thanksgiving, and then it'll be Christmas. I'd mentioned to the Wednesday night crowd that we're a lot closer to Christmas now than we are further away from March when things changed around here. That's how fast time has been going. But let me read to you, and this will be a a more lengthy passage than we've been used to over the summer. Uh, We're back in John's Gospel, and uh, this is where he begins to tell us many details as to the things that happened toward the last few days of Christ's life here on earth. And we're in John chapter 13, and this is the passage that covers Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now I'll read from verse 1 through verse 20, and then we'll pray again and ask the Lord to bless His Word and our study of it. This is verse 1, chapter 13, the Gospel of John. 
Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he had wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, He said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. This is God's word. Let's again ask his blessing and his help. Father in heaven, bless now our study of your word. Open it up to us. Make it new. Make it understandable. Lord, give us what we don't have. Give us what we need. And Lord, give us what will glorify you as we're understandingly obedient. Thank you for our time together on a Sunday morning. Make this time not just worth it for us, but worth it to you and your kingdom. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, as was said before we began our our summer break, when we wrapped up chapter 12, uh, chapter 13 is about where the Gospel of John splits. It's not equally weighted by halves, but this is considered to be the beginning of the second half of of the book. And this is where the actual pace of the narrative will slow significantly 
a lot more details were just given in those 20 verses that we read than previous. It seems to flow more quickly where he's going to different places and doing different things. The next five chapters are going to cover a conversation with him and his disciples that takes place in one time period, in one night, after what we just read began at the Last Supper. Uh, if you were to think of this section as the final season of, of a series, that's what most of us are familiar with, things that we watch on the screen, and a lot of them are arranged in, in, in seasons, in a series. If, if that's the way we're looking at this, then Christ washing the disciples' feet is the season premiere of the final season. Its opening act of Jesus' death and the, inter the introduction of his farewell conversations with his disciples. Uh, until Christ is arrested in chapter 18, all of this is one long conversation. As far as Jesus' public ministry, that's over completely. John mentions nothing else of his addressing the multitudes. And there's a few words, only a few, that are said to those that arrest Jesus. If you've got a red-letter version and you're flipping through, there's just a little piece at his arrest, and there's just a little piece of those who examine him, and then a little piece with Pilate, but there are very few words. And from here on out, this is important for us to understand, all that is to follow through the end of John's Gospel is to be understood from the perspective of, of Jesus' love for his own. And we're going to learn that John is a lot different than the synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in this regard. He has more to say about the love of Jesus than any of the rest. Look back again at verse 1 of chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having Loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. And this is written by John. Most intimate of the four gospel writers. The one who referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. His sensitivity to the emotional makeup of Jesus. And his relationship with his disciples. Is again one of a kind. So, Jesus' hour had come, that's made clear in verse 1, and up until now, that hadn't taken place. Uh, we heard it mentioned in chapter 2, speaking to his mother, the wedding feast, hour's not yet come, and then when his brothers wanted him uh, to go after his failure, and the, the crowds are leaving him after the feeding of 5,000, they wanted him to go into Jerusalem, a larger city, do his miracles. You can patch things up. He told them, my hour has not yet come. And then on a number of occasions when the rulers uh, had threatened him, nobody laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And then there near the end with Lazarus' resurrection, his hour had approached as the Greeks came to him to talk. But now it's clear there's no questioning his hour had come, and he knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world. So this marks the decisive end of his ministry. We're down to hours, not just days, certainly not weeks. 
Jesus would soon be leaving the world to be with his Father. And this verse, look at the way that this is put. And this is fascinating because there's always that discussion. What does Jesus know? Does he know everything? Does he read everyone's mind? Does he know, let's say, the temperature at every geographical location? A lot of us want to just think that he has total access to everything the Father knows. There's a few times where he says he doesn't know things. Like when he's to return, the Father knows that. So the way John is writing this, it seems that this has now been given to him by the Father. That he knows that his time is short. And having loved these men, the ones he described as his own, that were given to him from the world, that he's going to leave behind. We'll learn a lot more in chapter 17 when he's praying for these men. But he says, now that he knows that it's the end, and having loved them, he loves them to the end. Now that his time with them is short, it seems as if he ups this word, whatever it means, to them and his love for them, rather than pulls back. This is really setting up a goodbye. And John's the one to tell us about it. How many of you are good with goodbyes? How many of you like those? You might say, well, it depends. I'm not good with goodbyes. I don't count goodbyes to those that I'd rather not say goodbye to. Goodbyes are those that are, are that have the definition of the word saying goodbye. And it's not just with people. I, I can actually have an emotional response to the end of a really good book. Or the end of a vacation with, with your kids that you know will be a year older when this comes around next year. Or just a turn in life where it's, the college is over, it's time to go get a job. Okay, the first job's over, now you go to a new job. Or you leave the place you've been for 30 years or so. Goodbyes are hard because of the attachments that we have with people. Even with places. Uh, there's certain spots on this planet that I'm more fond of than others. I'm sure there are others that I'd be fond of, but I haven't spent any time with them. So we don't have any track record. That, that really has a, a lot to do with it. Words like nostalgia even fit into this type of thing. But imagine what this is like. Take everything you know of the hardest goodbyes from novels or movies or your own experiences and set all that aside. This is a goodbye like no other. Because no one loves as perfectly as Christ. And to think about what that must have been like, John is telling us in these verses what it was like and the, the, the humanity of Jesus is on display. I don't, I don't know if, if, if there's any parallel for this. But if you just try to imagine what it's like for Jesus to spend three years or so with some men that he chose and he called them from their families and their occupations. They went through a lot of interesting times together. But he saw them through the eyes of the humanity he created. He was attached to them with the emotions that he 
wove into the human experience as its author. And he spent time with them. He had a track record. To think that he wasn't attached to these men is to be wrong. We'll see in, in his prayer how attached he was to them. But he knows now that the time that he's got with them that way in that place is, is short. And that it's almost gone. He's up against an, an, an appointment. And I think that might be the most fascinating of all of it. You've got the God who doesn't need anyone or anything. Who was never created. He's an eternal being. Forever past, forever future. future. But he, he made a, an earth with people on it. And restricted them to time. The sun rises. The sun sets. Their bodies grow old. They say hello. They say goodbye. Jesus subjected himself to this. And he's up against a hard stop. It's going to change. It's going to be over. And it's going to be excruciatingly painful right before the end. And then to think about all that he's taught them and all that they don't know. All they're going to need to know. And what does he need to do with these men who are going to tell us about these things? They're going to write the New Testament basically. So for five chapters, he pours a significant amount of time into them over the course of just an evening. Most of our attraction to other people has to do with all those millions of little things that we couldn't articulate if we wanted to. That's our experience that might not be the same as with, with Jesus. Millions of things that took place over time spent together. It often has to do with just being in the same place at the same time. You're attached to the people that are part of this church because you're part of this church, right? That's why there are things like class reunions, even if though you're the type of person to say you hate them. You still want to see what they look like. You still want to see who they married. You still want to see pictures of their kids. Same with Christmas cards. You get them out and you say, oh, that's what they look like. But you, you know them. You have some type of background. And then sometimes I like to go and watch what happens at so many of these biscuit-serving restaurants early in the morning where older men gather together with other older men. And a lot of times all they do is gripe about stuff. But if you knew them long enough, you'd know that in their pockets they likely carry pictures of other men that they shared misery with. Or left on a battlefield. But it's this stuff that just makes a goodbye unthinkable. Right? Well, this is what Jesus and his men are up against. They don't know. He's told them, but it hasn't clicked yet. And I guess it'd be a good time to ask the question right here. If you knew that you had less than a week to live, what would you do with it? And before I started writing this stuff down, I hadn't thought about that. I don't know that I want to think about that. But I do know that it would have to do with the people that are closest to me. Certainly. If the question is put to Jesus, we know exactly what he did. Because John thought enough to write it all down. Five extra chapters that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do not, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't include. John's different than the others. If you've got a parallel Bible, the others just drop off at this spot. It's just John. 
and all the vine and the branches and the high priestly prayer, that's all John. Jesus knew that his end had come, and that's why we see this. Noise of the crowds are silent. At last, Jesus devotes, devotes himself exclusively to those he calls his own. And this is how the goodbye begins. In verse 2, during a supper that John doesn't tell us a lot about. We've got to go to the others to find out what that supper was. We don't even hear about how he instituted communion. That's the other three. It says, during supper, and here's a new piece of information that Jesus also knows. When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, and that's the preface for verse 4, where he gets up from the table and begins the process we know is washing the disciples' feet. But as far as those synoptic Gospels, again, another thing that they write a lot about that John totally omits is a lot said about demon possession and demon exorcism. It's like John saves that card for this place alone to emphasize all of the demonic forces having showed up where? At the Last Supper. He'd already done his deed. It's hard to tell from the Greek whether Judas made up his mind or the devil made up his mind. But either way, the two of them are in it together. And the betrayal is just hours away. You would think that if Jesus is becoming aware of these things as the Father's revealing it to him, he doesn't have much time left. He's got to say goodbye to his men. And one of those men is going to betray him in league with the devil. I would think that he'd just destroy him on the spot. Wouldn't you? He's got a better idea. He's going to wash his feet with the rest of the twelve and keep it to himself which one it is until he shows his own card by dis dis displaying that in the Garden of Eden. These are things we would never have thought or even, as, as you've said, you can't make this stuff up. So again, what Jesus is about to do in symbolic action is going to frame the next several chapters and explain his work on Calvary. He's not worried about Judas because his father's given all things into his hand. He's on his way back to his father. Judas could do him no harm. But think about that. Often Jesus would explain himself after he would teach. If it's a parable... Or say, after uh, the rich young ruler came and asked him a question, they have their conversation, the rich young ruler walks away, and then Jesus explains to his disciples what happened. It's tough for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven. But he's always explaining himself after he did something. This is different. He explains what's going to happen before it happens. This foot washing is going to help them unlock the mystery of, of the cross. They've heard it's coming, but they would never have guessed it. And once it's done, they're going to put these pieces together slowly over time. But by the day of Pentecost, it's all there. They have the gospel. But this foot washing here is going to help them. It's an illustration of the cross. Here's somewhat of a thesis. Washing the disciples' feet foreshadows the cross. The voluntary humility of the Lord cleanses His loved ones and gives them an example of selfless service which he expects them to show others. He's going to tell them this is an example that you must follow. 
But there's two things there. If you want to write those down, humility and cleansing. You could actually teach this passage using one or the other. I think it's best to use them both because they're both here. If Peter hadn't have spoken up, you wouldn't see the cleansing as, as vividly as the humility part. But that's part of the story. So we teach it as it is told. John describes the scene as it took place in front of his eyes. His record is vivid and detailed. And I'm grateful that he wrote it as he did. Verse 4. After that with Judas, knowing all things had been given to him, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then pouring water into a basin begins to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, of course, this would have shocked the disciples. We don't, I don't think, need to go into a long discussion as to how culturally foot washing was part of what they would do, especially when they'd sit down to meals together. But it wouldn't have been done this way, and Jesus would certainly never have been the one who would be supposed to do it. Uh, most Jews wouldn't even consider using a Jewish servant to wash other Jews' feet. That was the work for Gentiles. Same as when uh, John the Baptist would talk about being unworthy to untie a shoe. That was saying a massive amount. Um, and the idea of tradition of teachers who had understudies who would serve them. They would never wash their feet. Had to draw the line somewhere. In other words... So this is unprecedented. That would be an abuse of the word. John doesn't tell us who was first. But it makes sense that it was probably Peter. Because there's silence between the end of verse 5 there and verse 6. Note the personal pronouns. You know what personal pronouns are. Let's read this and I'll put some emphasis on the personal pronouns. And... These personal pronouns, especially in the first line, are, are in the Greek, actually emphasized that way. Verse 6, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Big difference between the you and my. Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Well, that makes a difference in Peter. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, Peter is Peter. He's impetuous. I think there's a little bit of that in all of us. And I love to learn... From Peter, I think I would have made the same mistakes, but they would have been quiet mistakes. I wouldn't have said them. Peter's always saying them. He's saying what everyone else is thinking. So what can we say about him? Um, write this down because I think it's important. And then I'll, I'll reword it if it sounds too technical. Peter was humble enough to see the incongruity of Jesus' actions, but proud enough to dictate to his Lord. Say it one more time. He was humble enough 
to see the incongruity of Jesus' actions, but proud enough to dictate to his Lord. I'll put it another way. And ask yourself, isn't that the way we are too? Humble enough to know we're not worth it, but proud enough to tell Jesus how we think it should be. If, if we're Christians at all, we have enough humility to know that He's God and we're His creation. And if we have any chance for heaven at all, it's because He's washed us of our sins. But that doesn't stop us from being proud enough to tell Him how we think things ought to be done. How He ought to handle us. How He ought to handle someone else. It's just our human behavior. But what He says that seems to gain Peter's attention if I do not wash you you have no part with me that goes for everybody and that's not talking about washing feet necessarily that's talking about washing our sins away there's no remission of sins there's no salvation no sinner goes to heaven just sinners who are redeemed and atoned for So if we're going to try to figure this out for ourselves, we know what what Peter's saying here, but we don't live in Palestine. We don't customarily have people wash our feet. I know some of you may go and get your toenails done, and uh, they usually start by washing your feet off real good. That's not the same. And this was a cultural thing that we have little in common with but the 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 point of it is that washing feet was a dirty job and that that plays into this a lot Uh, in this context you wouldn't want someone greater than you to wash your feet this doesn't seem right and uh, you might not want anyone less greater than you washing your feet if you knew them same as, I don't know if any of you are like me. I'm, I'm a little, uh, I don't know, off-center from weird. But I don't really like to know my doctor that well. There's just stuff that, that has to go on in, in that relationship that you want to just say, you know, don't know you that well. I'd, I'd, what am I talking about? It's, it's humiliating it's embarrassing Uh, there's a reason why we don't put our feet on the table there's a reason uh, why we wouldn't wear flip-flops to a formal there's a reason why the Kurds took their shoes and beat the head of Saddam Hussein's statue when they ripped it down after the Gulf War and if if you don't remember that uh, there's a reason why a guy took a shoe and threw it at George W. That's, that's the extent of their ability to communicate contempt. Because shoes and feet are a dirty thing you would never put in another person's face. Right? Even the disciples, the way they ate, it was around a table and, and they would lie in, in like a radiating distance from the table. Their feet were the furthest from the table. Their heads were the closest to the food. Makes sense? Our feet sit under the table where nobody sees them. But mix all of this in and this example of foot washing, teaching 
humility. And that's, that's, that's what's going to be the example for the rest of the disciples. But there's also this need for cleansing. And this is what Peter brings by his objection. Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And I'm thinking that, yeah, he knows that Jesus is important and he's not as much, but that whole thing is offensive to him. And I think it probably includes the idea, not because his feet were not dirty and they didn't need cleaning, but because they were dirty and because that would be humiliating for Peter. Embarrassing. It's not right. You shouldn't have to wash my dirty feet is the idea. Not just how gross it would be for Jesus to wash them. But how awful it would be for me to have to put up with him doing it. Does that make sense? This is why Hebrews 4.12 is such a painful verse of scripture when we understand what it really means. And you know the first part. It's talking about the word of God being sharp like a two-edged sword. Able to pierce between uh, the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. But then there's verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, I don't think Peter's at this point. He's still thinking about feet and water and wiping them dry. But there's a spiritual context to this that Peter is going to become all too familiar with. Oh, about the time a rooster crows. And then patching that up over a fish breakfast on the Sea of Galilee. We all have parts of us that we don't want Jesus to clean. Not because we think they're not dirty and they don't need it, but because we know that they're filthy and we're ashamed of it. No one likes to be naked. But that's exactly the way the verse described it. Salvation requires the nakedness of repentance. Or it's no salvation. And we've been covering ourselves up from the garden. Right? When did they find out that naked wasn't okay? After they sinned. There's, there's been a, a tie between those sins. It has to do with shame. And we shouldn't overlook the fact that after Peter got the first answer wrong and reverses 180 degrees, that's Peter. Oh, I got the first one wrong. Let's make sure we don't get the second wrong. Let's do it opposite and double down. That was wrong too. But even so, Peter is still reluctant to let Jesus do what he wants. Peter prefers to set the terms. If you notice that, Jesus says, wash your feet. No, you're never going to wash my feet. Okay. Well, if I don't do this, then you're going to have no part with me. Okay, well, then give me a whole bath. That's still Peter telling Jesus what to do. Right? When Jesus isn't talking about that. Um, there's a great deal of help in knowing that Peter misunderstood that. Because here's the point. It's not an area of skin that is washed that matters here that the acceptance of Jesus' lowly service as the bearer of sin, as the Lamb of God who's here on this planet to take away the sin of the world. You can talk about Jesus no matter where we see Him here. It, where it really comes down to the, to the point of new birth is when He gets to the sin problem. You've got to give that to me. I'm going to take it 
And I'm going to have the Father punish me for it instead of you. This is what's going to help them make sense of the cross. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. This was written much later. From the time that John wrote it. What would it be worth for you to hear those three words from the mouth of Jesus? How many of you doubt your salvation? How many of you mess up and think, that's it for me? But to hear Jesus say, you are clean. I did that. I took all that. I, I, I washed it away. You may need your feet cleaned from here or there, but you'll never need a whole bath. I did that for you. That's the cleansing aspect. I think those three words might be the most precious to those men minus one who was in that room. Because John goes on and says, Not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why I said not all of you are clean. It is possible to be washed and not cleansed. Jesus washed his feet too. That wasn't the point. Showing him humility. But it had nothing to do with his cleansing. Because there was no repentance. The real filth was never taken away. Now Jesus didn't tell the others who was to betray him. Until the arrest they had no idea. Verse 12, when he'd washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? That's one of those things you ought to highlight in your Bibles. Because when Jesus asks a question like that, do you understand what I've done to you? Then that's a prelude to uh, being taught a valuable lesson. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord. You are right, for so I am. So he's commending them for recognizing his true position. But he's doing that precisely because of the implications involved. That's verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, means I'm greater than you, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, there's no reason to prevent you from washing anyone's feet. The distance between my greatness and wherever you are is much more than whoever you are and whoever else somebody else is. Jesus also makes it clear that his action was no casual event. Verse 15, it set for them an example. Here's another thing. Maybe you ought to highlight that and circle it and underline it and maybe draw an arrow to it. Don't ever forget that part. For I have given you an example. You want to know what the Lord wants you to do? Be humble to people. That will be the very basis that the church will not destroy itself over the next 2,000 or so years. That we actually still exist. That we're meeting here together and don't hate one another is because Jesus showed us how to do this. How would we ever have a platform to tell anybody else about Jesus other than some humility? Proud people strutting around thinking they're better than everyone else is the most obnoxious thing the world has ever seen. You can't get any better than this example. He said that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now a lot of people have taken this very wooding, woodingly, woodenly, literally. And they've turned foot washing into 
the third ordinance. They baptize, have communion, and wash each other's feet. There's nothing in here that says this must be specifically. And the things that he's talking about with Peter pretty much negate that. And uh, the idea of this, and I know people have used it, you know, in their wedding to show everybody else how humble they are to each other. I think it'd probably be a better to just wash the dishes, you know, for the next 50 years, uh, rather than show everybody what your bride's feet look like, you know, in front of... Now, I know people don't... I'm probably in trouble just for what I've said. But do you, get, do you get the idea here? This is to be practical. On purpose. Consistently. Serve them. As the lesser. Not the greater. Now. What Jesus says here in verse 17. If you know these things. Blessed are you if you do them. And this is brother James that will talk about this in great deal being doers of the word not just hearers only it's one thing to know it's another thing to do but I thought I'd mention in closing here before I want to show you something that will lead us into what we're going to sing here in a moment in the fifth chapter of his first letter Peter would write this statement this is Peter impetuous Peter Peter that denied his Lord three times Peter that had to be told to feed his sheep three times. Peter that got up and delivered a message and 3,000 souls were saved. Peter that had to be withstood to the face by Paul because he had an inconsistency in his testimony. Peter who would ask to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to die the same way as his Lord. This is what Peter said. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, embarrassments, worries about what Jesus will think if He sees everything, because He cares for you, because He loved them to the end. wonder where Peter got all that. From his master. We're going to end the service with the chorus. He is Lord. But I thought what I'd show you. Because he is Lord is reminiscent. Of. Philippians chapter 2. Which is where Paul gives us. A theological understanding. Of the transaction that took place. When Jesus left heaven. Took on flesh bore the sins of the world and was exalted back into heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords. What Paul gives us in Philippians 2, theologically, is what John has just given us visually. Any of you enjoy object lessons when you're in class? Doesn't that really open it up and you're able to learn if, if, if the, the good teachers use illustrations or they bring something with them or they let you put your hands on it and take it apart and look at it, an object lesson, an example. It says a thousand words. Now let me read to you. We'll just overlap. One overlaid against the other. But if you were to look in Philippians 2, 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. How does the rest go? Who, though he was in the form of God. Okay? We just read in John 3, 4. He rose from supper. But before that, Jesus knowing, this is verse 3 rather, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So certainly he was in the form of God. Then Philippians 2, 7. But emptied himself and made himself nothing. We just read when John told us that he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then in Philippians 2, 7, the rest of the verse, having emptied himself, made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. We read in verse 5 of John 13, Then he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Then you get to John 13, 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. It's almost a picture. Here you have God. He puts aside his glory, comes to earth, pays for man's sin. He goes back to heaven and resumes his place. And that's where Philippians 2.9 tells us, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So if you add these two things together, who is it that washed the feet of the disciples? Only the name above every name. Only the Creator made man in his own image. That man sinned against him. Then he came and cleaned it all up at great cost, his life, so that he could put us back where it started. Not unlike the garden. The perfect, unencumbered relationship with him. That right there is uh, quite a demonstration. And the demonstration is left for us for an example. Here's what we take home. How could we ever think about not forgiving or serving anyone else? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you've given to us. We thank you for serving us, as unimaginable as that may be. We thank you for looking on our worst. And rather than destroying us, you just took it yourself. We're reminded by statements we might make. One of our children is sick, hurting, or ill. We'd rather just take it. Suffer with it ourselves. You did that for us. So Lord, may we do that for others. In your name. We'll never look more like you than when we're serving others. We thank you for our time together in this service. We ask all this in your name. Amen.